I'm going to pray as we head into the message this morning, but I also want to pray for a couple of things uh, for people in the life of our church. And so um, Steve Hill is still in hospital. Uh, on top of his surgery he's had, he's actually had a ruptured lung, um, which they don't know why that happened. Um, but that has happened, and um, so that's the, that's the issue at the moment um, for Steve. So we're going to pray for him. Uh, and just going to pray uh, for a couple other things uh, together. So pray with me as we do that, and then I'm going to pray for our message this morning. So Father, I do lift up Steve before you this morning, um, and I pray that uh, this this issue with his lung, as as um, as his uh, surgical wounds heal and things like that, Lord, I pray that um, his lung would be healed up and that he's able to come home. Uh, I pray that you would uh, be with him, that his uh, spirits would be lifted by your presence uh, as he has this extended stay in hospital now, Lord. And uh, I pray, Father, that uh, um, yeah, that he'd be returned to his home and returned to um, our fellowship here uh, in, in quick time, Lord. Um, I pray for, for Jenny Ball still, Lord, as she's recovering from a knee surgery. Um, and I pray for the Dennis family on mission in China, Lord. I pray that um, as, they're, as they're getting on in their time there now, a few months in, Lord, uh, half a year in indeed, Lord, I pray that you would um, just continue to build relationships for them, that you'd continue to establish them there. Uh, and I pray for the Kay family, Lord, on holidays now um, from their mission field in, in Russia. I just pray that they'd be blessed and refreshed and restored. Um, and as we come to your word this morning, Lord, I pray that, that you would enrich us from your word, that you would remind us um, of truths that we may already know or speak new truth into us. And uh, um, just thank you for what our, our brother Abraham read this morning, that you shout deliverance over us. And so as we, as we dig into this word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would shout deliverance over us and through us to the community beyond the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so this morning we, we, we had a break last week with David Nathan um, here sharing with us, and so I'm not sure if it's up on the podcast yet, but if you missed David's message last week, I encourage you to, to, to tap into that and to listen to that. Um, it was a great message about what do we see and, and how, how um, a number of things that we choose to do impact how we see in the supernatural. Um, but so this week we're back to our To the Ends of the Earth series and we've been journeying through the book of Acts and exploring the story of the early church. And, and so this week we're going to continue that, but our, for the last three messages of this series, the, the tone changes a little bit from just focusing in on the early church to, to exploring the question of how far does the gospel of grace go? Uh, how far does this message this, that the, the church is called to be witnesses to, and we can remember in the first uh, chapter of Acts, Jesus gives the call to the church, the fundamental call of every believer in Jesus Christ is to be a witness for Jesus, to testify uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so in these last three messages this week and the next two weeks, we're going to look at how far does that go? How far does this call to be a witness go? And we kind of gave it away with the title of the, of the whole series, calling it To the Ends of the Earth. That's kind of um, a bit of a, a spoiler. But, but this morning, I want to look at uh, how far does the gospel go in terms of is someone possibly sinful enough for it to not stretch to them? 
How far does the gospel of God's grace reach? Is anyone beyond God's grace? Is anyone too lost to be saved? And so this morning, the the fundamental answer we're going to give to that is that Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners. That's the the message of the conversion of Saul, um, who we more often know as Paul the Apostle. That's the message of this conversion of, of, of Saul, is that Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners. If, if, we, if we read this, um, if we're familiar with the New Testament and familiar with the knowledge that, that Paul wrote most of the New Testament um, letters, that it, we, it's easy to read this passage through that lens and, and to be thinking of Paul's life before this moment as just a brief prelude before he came, became the great apostle of the church. Um, but, but we need to kind of step into this text and remember who Saul was before he was Paul. And, and so I want to say this morning that the scripture tells us that Saul was the worst of sinners. Uh, we remember when we were talking about the outbreak of opposition a few weeks ago that the first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen and uh, he was preaching about Jesus and, and he said some things that upset the religious officials and so they took him outside the city and stoned him. And, and we're told that a man named Saul presided over, gave approval to that stoning. He kind of officiated over it. He was in a sense the, the religious official condoning the execution of Stephen. And then it says a great persecution uh, broke out amongst the church and we get given this summary statement back in chapter 8 about Saul. It says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul was a Middle Eastern religious fundamentalist who was uh, persecuting and executing Christians. In the beginning of today's reading, we we get kind of caught back up with where Paul is up to. It says, uh, as Peter read, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's uh, one of the words we use for Christians, followers of Jesus. So if he found anyone there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so Damascus was outside of uh, kind of the immediate area of Jerusalem. It's in uh, what we, we, um, we no longer, like not today in, in terms of Palestine, Israel. It's outside of that territory uh, today as well. And so Paul needed kind of an official uh, warrant of arrest in a sense to go outside the territory that he lived in, outside the, the temple territory. And so he gained that from the high priest and he was going to Damascus to spread the terror that he had wrought in Jerusalem to the surrounding regions. Paul was spreading not just beyond driving Christianity out of Jerusalem, as it said in, uh, back in Acts chapter 8, that following the stoning of Stephen, that, that all but the uh, apostles fled to surrounding territories. And so Saul wasn't satisfied with driving Christianity out of Jerusalem. He wanted to drive it out of existence altogether. Saul was uh, the number one public enemy of the church. And so if we want to really understand the power of Acts chapter 9, we kind of need to, at this point, forget about who Paul becomes. 
As I said, he is a Middle Eastern religious fundamentalist seeking to destroy followers of Jesus. And so we might be able to conjure up in today's climate some images of what a Paul-like person might look like, and I don't mean physical appearance in that sense, but more our emotive response to, to modern-day you know, religious fundamentalist Middle Eastern men who seek to, to kill Christians. Because that's the kind of response we should have when we read this about Saul. We should have this, this man is a horrible, horrible man response. Not like, oh, that's okay, because he kind of becomes this great champion of the church. We lose the power of it if we read the Apostle Paul back into who Saul was. And so this terrorist is on his way to Damascus to arrest and drag back to Jerusalem, most likely to see them executed, anyone in Damascus who claims to follow Jesus. And then the story continues, though, that as he, as he approached Damascus, as he got near to Damascus, it says that uh, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded, who are you, Lord? He, he could recognize that whoever this voice was, whoever this light was, it was the Lord. It was the Almighty God. And the answer he got was, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you were told what you must do. And so Paul has this encounter with Jesus, uh, encounter with the Lord and he learns that the Lord is Jesus and that Jesus is the Lord and then he just gets told to go into Damascus and there he'll be told what to do. And we're going to fill out the rest of the story but I want to jump kind of to later in the story just to, to, to talk about who Saul is a few days later. Sorry, I forgot to change the reference on the bottom of that, but that is actually Acts chapter 9, verse 20 to 22. This is just a few days later in Saul's life. It says, At once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. Now remember what he was coming to Damascus to go into the synagogue to do. To drag off anybody who believed in Jesus, but he, he gets there, he arrives at the place of his mission, but what he's doing there is that he is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? This was astonishing, shocking for anyone who saw this man, the terrorist Saul, now preaching in the name of Jesus. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So complete was Saul's conversion, transformation, salvation, that he is in the space of a few days converted from a religious terrorist to a proclaimer of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, the story of Paul, gives us the message that Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners because Paul was the worst of sinners. Saul, I'm mixing up the, the names in the timeline, but Saul was the worst of sinners, 
but he became the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament letters, who did more than perhaps any individual in the first uh, 50 years of Christianity to spread the message of Jesus Christ. Ironically, both in his terrorism, spreading other believers uh, beyond Jerusalem, but more so in his missionary work. The life story of Paul, the life message of Paul, is that Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners. And I know this because that's how Paul described it himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He, he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, who, who followed him in, in leadership in some of the churches that, that Paul planted. And he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So Paul affirms that, that he is the worst of sinners. He, he didn't just commit sin, he, he committed what, what we often understand as the unforgivable sin. He blasphemed against the Lord, he called the Lord a, a sinner, he called the Lord of the enemy and sought to destroy the church. But he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, because he was the worst, he was shown mercy so that in me, Paul says, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying that he was saved by Jesus because he was the worst of sinners. So that no one else would ever uh, come to a place of, of journeying towards belief in Jesus and then think, I'm too bad. I'm too sinful, I'm the worst, I can't be saved. Paul reflects on his life as he writes to Timothy and says, I was saved because I was, a, I was the worst as a message to all who might believe to say, you too can be saved. You too can experience through Jesus eternal life. The message of Paul's life, of his conversion, is that Jesus Christ came to save the worst of sinners. But not just the worst of sinners. Jesus Christ came to save the furthest of the far. Jesus Christ came to save the most broken of the broken. He came to save the, not just those who'd stumbled off the path a little bit, but the most lost of the lost, not those who just lost a little bit of hope, but the most hopeless of the hopeless. That is who Jesus Christ came to save. Jesus Christ came to save the worst of sinners and Paul's life is testimony to that. But, but this thing of Jesus saving the worst of sinners, of transforming lives from opposition to being proclaimers of Jesus Christ isn't just something that Jesus did once off. He's doing it over and over and over again. And so what I want to show you now is just a, a four-minute snippet from, from last Sunday's Alpha video. This is a, a testimony of a man named Shane Taylor and, and when I watched this uh, during the Alpha thing, um, Christy always, my wife, has a, a way of looking at me when there's tears in my eyes when I'm watching something and says, are you crying? Um, <laughs> and so I challenge you not to be emotionally moved this morning by what Jesus has done in this man's life as you watch this video.
I got in with the wrong crowd and I started to um, pinch cars, burgle houses, uh, become known, me and my friends become known as very high profile thieves really. I used to carry big knives, uh, the, the big knives to the smaller knives down my waist and I was the kind of person where if you pulled a knife out I would use it. I ended up stabbing someone in the head. I ended up um, stabbing someone just missing his heart and going through the top of his shoulder, uh, the, the top of his chest and his shoulder away. He dropped to the floor and so I was on the run for two attempted murders. And then I was just, when I went to prison, I had such a hatred for the system and I couldn't handle being told what to do, couldn't handle prison officers mucking me about. When I went out on association, I got the prison officer and I, uh, I stabbed him. And then this led to me going into maximum security prisons, being put on CSC. It's where they feed you through a hatch in the door. There's no physical contact, so they have to have riot shields and riot gear on. Um, and that was my life for a long, long time, basically. And I, I just was going from prison to prison, prison to prison. But then I ended up going to Long Larton in Worcestershire. And when I was in there, I ended up going in an alpha course. Never heard of an alpha course, didn't know anything. And I just remember walking in because they'd sent me down. I sat down on a chair and I thought, oh no, it's a Christian thing. And we'd just go there every week and I would argue. And the pastor, um, I remember he come to me. He said, right, I'm going to say a few scriptures first before we pray. And one of them was, no one's righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then he said the verses about Jesus and explained a bit why he died on the cross for sinners and stuff. And then he said, pray. So I started praying and I said, uh, God, I said, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And nothing happened. But then as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy feeling in my stomach. And it started to raise up and raise up and raise up and raise up. And I just broke out into uncontrollable um, tears. And I just sobbed. <clears throat> and I just... Right there. Because that was a change in my whole life. I knew God was real. Um, and no one will change that now. And then I remember <laughs> running on the wing. People clearly knew that I would become a Christian. So I actually helped them on another two Alpha courses. And then I, um, I got released. I've been in a prison where I... Because you would have thought that the prison where I stopped the prison officers would have been the last prison to have me. But they were the first. That's how God works. The best thing for me is going in prisons and helping the lads in prison. And, and trying to tell them about God. I've got um, four kids and then my life. Um, and what upsets me is because now I know um, that back then, if I had the kids, uh, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. And now they sit on the night and have Bible studies with their dad. Um, <clears throat> have Bible studies with their dad. Have a life, a beautiful, um, my life and this probably is my wife and my kids are the best gift that, apart from the grace God's given me is the best gift I've ever he'll ever give me didn't expect to cry like that 
recovered now. And so that testimony to me is just a profound testimony of how Jesus is still doing what he did in the life of the Apostle Paul. That people, the worst of sinners, are still encountering Jesus and being transformed. But not just transformed, but, but going back into the very places. That the, 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 the prison where he stabbed a prison officer was the first prison he went into to speak to other prisoners about Jesus. Uh, and that God is still doing this, this testimony thing, using a man like that to be able to say to these other prisoners, well, you might think you're too bad to be saved by Jesus, but, but let me tell you my story. Jesus Christ, if we can go to the, yeah, Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners. And so for us, uh, if, we're, if we're not believers, if you're here this morning and you've discounted yourself from, from being fully saved or being good enough for Jesus, I want you to take that message home, that Jesus Christ came to save even the worst, worst of sinners, and so that includes you. But for us who are followers of Jesus, then, then our role is that we're called to be witnesses of this truth. As I've said through this series, our fundamental calling as a follower of Jesus is to be a witness to Jesus. But it's so easy, isn't it, for us to, to put people into the too hard basket? Maybe because they're, they're so sinful or, or maybe it's because they're, they're so atheistic or, or maybe it's because we just can't imagine them ever coming to a church or, or we just can't imagine them ever believing in Jesus or, or we just can't imagine their life turning around. It's so easy to put people into the too hard basket. But we're called to be witnesses and as Jesus Christ came to save the worst of sinners, it means that we are called to be witnesses to the worst of sinners, to the most lost of the lost, the furthest of the far, the most atheist of the atheists, the most broken of the broken, the most hopeless of the hopeless. These are the people we're, we're called to witness, to point towards Jesus. And, and so it's it's hard in a sense when there's these people that we can't ever even imagine them putting their trust in Jesus. It's hard to kind of think, well, how do we witness to people like that? How do we witness to people that seem so far off? Well, I want to suggest this morning that the mistake that we make is actually that some people are close. That it only takes a gentle nudge or if just the right words and, and they'll be stepping over the line into faith. I want to suggest this morning that the story of Paul tells us what it means to be a witness to the worst of the worst and, and actually how we witness to the worst of the worst should be the same way that we witness to those that seem close. And so the, the, the story of, of Paul's transformation begins with the question, what transformed Paul's life? What was it that happened in Paul's story that completely transformed him? Was it persuasive arguments about Jesus? Was it great apologetics? Was it a great sermon? Was it uh, someone, you know, 
opening the scriptures to him and saying, see, Jesus, Jesus here, this is reliable text and Jesus is the Lord. And was it, was it any of the kind of things that we usually think about when we think about leading people to Jesus? Was, it, was Paul persuaded into transforming his life from being a, a religious terrorist to an uh, apostle of Jesus? No, he wasn't. It, it was an encounter with Jesus that transformed his life. And so if we're going to witness to people, then what we want to do is lead people towards encounters with Jesus. So there's a place for reason and persuasion and, and apologetics and giving people understanding of the scriptures, but, but that's not the end point. That is to pave a road for people to encounter Jesus. That is to remove obstacles, to build bridges, to, to, to do the work of leading people towards Jesus himself. It's encounters with Jesus that transform the lives of the worst of the worst, the lost of the lost, the the most broken, the most hopeless. It's encounters with Jesus. Because only encounters with Jesus can open the eyes of the blind. And, And by this I mean, well, physically blind, but I mean spiritually blind. See, in Paul's story, we, we, we see uh, the last couple of verses of what Peter read for us this morning. We're, we're told that Saul got up from the ground after his encounter with Jesus, but, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And then um, what we're going to talk about in a moment is Ananias, another man, prayed for him. And then the next thing that happened in Saul's life is that um, when he was prayed for, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And so Paul had this experience of physical blindness and restoration of physical sight. But, but that was, in a sense, a metaphor of what was really going on inside him, that his spiritual blindness was healed. That scales fell from his spiritual eyes and he could suddenly see what he couldn't see before. Because Paul was a man who was passionate about the scriptures. He was a fundamentalist. You know, they didn't call it the Bible then and it was only the Old Testament at that stage because he wrote most of the New Testament. But he was a fundamentalist, Bible-believing Jew. He knew the scriptures by heart, most likely. It wasn't new scripture that transformed his life. It was his spiritual blindness being healed by an encounter with Jesus and by the prayer of another believer. His eyes were not open just physically, they were open spiritually. Only an encounter with Jesus can open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And so Paul, reflecting on this as he wrote to the church of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4.4, the church of 1 Corinthians As he wrote to the church of Corinthians in his first letter to them, in in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, The God of this age, which is a reference to Satan, it's the God of this air, the, the spiritual forces of this age, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see. And when you think about, I just want you to capture this language in light of Paul's conversion. They cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. And so there is a place for us to show them Jesus, to show them Scripture, to to build bridges, to clear away obstacles. 
but what we really want to lead them to is an encounter with Jesus because only an encounter with Jesus can unblind the eyes of an unbeliever. Only an encounter with Jesus can cause the scales to fall from someone's spiritual eyes or the eyes of their minds so that they can put their trust in Jesus. So we begin in witnessing for people who seem so far off from Jesus, we begin with just praying that they would have an encounter. Lots of people look back to the stoning of Stephen where Stephen said um, of, of Paul and of Saul and those who were, uh, who were executing them, Lord, don't hold this against him. And, and so we begin by, by praying for those that seem so far off, so far from us being able to imagine them putting their faith in Jesus and for those who seem close, we begin by praying that they would encounter Jesus. It's what transforms Saul's life and it's what transforms Shane Taylor's life. He, he'd gone to Alpha, he'd argued, maybe some of the bridges had been built in the first few sessions, maybe some obstacles had been cleared away, but, but it was a physical, tangible encounter with Jesus. Very different to Paul's encounter. Not every encounter is going to look the same, but, but he encountered Jesus. And that was the change of his whole life in his own words. We pray for encounter, but we also lead people towards encounter with those things of persuasion, clearing obstacles, bridge building. But we also want to be an encounter. You might be the encounter of an unbeliever with Jesus. Let me put that in better words. An unbeliever might encounter Jesus in you. And so the more like Jesus we become, the, the, the more that people encounter Jesus in us, the more that they're going to have the blindness from their eyes removed, the blindness from their spiritual eyes removed, and the more they'll see Jesus and the more likely they are to come into a place where their lives are transformed like Paul's, like Shane's and like millions of other people. In a sense, we want them to encounter Jesus in us so that they journey towards that and then we kind of just step out of the way and go, there's the real deal. There's the real Jesus. And so being a witness to the worst of the worst begins with praying for, leading towards and being an encounter with Jesus. But there's also a, another human part of this story. There's, there's a man named Ananias. There's a man named Barnabas. And there's, there's the church in Jerusalem who practice something that, that I want to call this morning revolutionary acceptance. There's a man named Ananias that we're told about who's a completely different Ananias from the one that dropped dead a few chapters earlier uh, in Acts. Um, he's a local in Damascus. He's a, he's a man who was on Paul's hit list, in a sense. He was a Jesus-believing Jew in Damascus. He was the example of the kind of person that Paul, sorry, Saul was coming to arrest and most likely kill. And so Ananias himself uh, has his own encounter with Jesus in a vision. And it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias... The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and that street's apparently still there in Damascus today, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. And so Saul kind of says to the Lord, are you sure you've got the right person? You've asked me to go pray for the person who we're all hiding from at the moment. We're all aware that this terrorist has arrived in town and we're all kind of a bit afraid and you've appeared in a vision and asked me to go pray for him. And so the Lord continues, Go! This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Pardon me. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. And this is what I want us to capture. He placed his hands on Saul, this man he knows had come to Damascus, most likely to try and kill him and his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he lays his hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias was right to be afraid of Saul. He was right to be terrified of him, but he was obedient to the Lord. It wasn't his own kind of choice, but he was obedient to the Lord and he accepted Saul at the Lord's leading wholeheartedly as a brother. He took the words, Lord, at face value. He didn't wait for Saul to prove himself, to, to pay off his sins, to, to earn acceptance, to spend six months making sure that this conversion experience was going to take and he was going to live it out. He, he walked into the room of a known terrorist and put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. See, it was the encounter with Jesus that transformed him. But wrapped up together with that is the revolutionary acceptance of a man like Ananias. I originally was going to call it radical acceptance because, because that places it on Ananias that he did something radical. But, but I want to call it revolutionary acceptance because that level of acceptance revolutionizes lives. And the powerful thing about this is we never hear about Ananias again. He may have been a great man in the church or he may have been a pew warmer and this was his one moment. But, but this moment of revolutionary acceptance brought within the brotherhood and sisterhood of the church the man who would write most of the New Testament, who would spread the gospel to the edges of the known world, who would go to Rome and speak of Jesus' name in the household of Caesar. And so... You may have heard testimonies and, and I don't know if they're true about you know, the man who only led one person to Jesus but that one person led one person to Jesus and that person was Billy Graham and Billy Graham led millions to Jesus. I don't know if those stories are true. I hope they are but, but that story could be true of you. You might not see yourself as an Apostle Paul or as a great evangelist or you might not feel that calling but we're all called to be an Ananias who practices revolutionary acceptance that accepts because the Lord accepts, not because we've seen them prove that they're worthy of acceptance. 
And so Ananias is the first one that we see practicing revolutionary acceptance. And then uh, later in the chapter, we see a, a familiar name pop up again, Barnabas. Barnabas, who remember his name, means son of encouragement. He is uh, an encourager. That's all about his character. And it says that when Paul came to Jerusalem, this is sometime later. So Paul has actually been living the life now for a while, um, depending on how we interpret it, probably up to three years. And he tried to join the disciples in Jerusalem. And this is his first trip back to Jerusalem since he left for Damascus to kill everybody. But they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They thought that all of this was just an act from Saul to infiltrate the inner ranks of the apostles of the leadership of the church and wipe it out from the top. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them uh, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and, and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. The church in Jerusalem was justifiably afraid. He had executed their brother Stephen. He had left to go execute, arrest others and now he was back claiming to be a follower of Jesus and uh, there wasn't social media in that day and so they couldn't keep tabs on whether Paul's Facebook account was consistent with a believer in Jesus. This was a man who they'd heard whispers about something crazy had happened with that guy Saul but, but when he came back to Jerusalem they saw the face of the man who had stood there and held people's coats while they threw stones at Stephen and killed him. And so they were justifiably afraid and and so Barnabas practiced revolutionary acceptance in leading the church in this way. He said, Saul is our brother. And and so those who are the, the worst of sinners, the most lost of the lost, the most hopeless of the hopeless, sometimes as a church, as a whole church, it can be hard to, you know, embrace wholeheartedly those people need Barnabases in their life to to put their arm around them and say Saul is a brother he's a sister he's someone that should be welcomed in and so the profound thing about Barnabas and Saul's relationship is is Barnabas believed in who Saul was more than Saul did and and so People who who believe that they're too sinful or too lost or too broken or or that they're just not going to fit in the church. They need people like a Barnabas who's going to revolutionarily accept them and believe in them more than they do. A few chapters over, but but many years later, in Acts chapter 11, um, we're told earlier that that Saul had gone home to his city of Tarsus. He'd preached about Jesus a bit and I'm sure he was an active part of the church in in Tarsus, but he'd he'd gone home. And there's this outbreak of revival in a a place called Antioch, which is is a a city predominantly um, Gentile and this outbreak of revival was mostly amongst the Gentiles. And and so Barnabas remembered that, that Saul was God's chosen implement to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas had gone to Antioch. He was preaching and leading the church there and, and having a really successful ministry. And he, he could have continued on his own, but, but it says in Acts chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, it says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, 
And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a while, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first, sorry, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Barnabas believed in Saul more than Saul did. It was from Antioch that Saul, after spending a whole year there ministering to that church, that he was commissioned and released to go as a missionary to other churches. That he went on several great missionary trips and, and planted churches amongst the Gentiles and, and, and was released into his God-given destiny because he was revolutionarily accepted by Ananias. That Barnabas accepted him in a revolutionary way as well and led the church to accept him. But that Barnabas accepted him more than he accepted himself, that he believed in him more than he believed in himself. And so Barnabas, the son of encouragement, released Saul into his ministry. And so if we're to reach the most lost of the lost, the most broken of the broken, the worst of the sinners, the most hopeless of the hopeless, it begins with leading people into encounters with Jesus. Praying that they would encounter Jesus, praying that the scales would fall from their spiritual eyes and that they would see, leading them towards a place where they can encounter Jesus, being ourselves an encounter with Jesus. It begins with seeking that they might encounter Jesus, but, but we need to be there as a church as believers, practicing revolutionary levels of acceptance. Putting acceptance before change, before evidence that we should accept. Welcoming before we've been given any reason why we should welcome. Loving before we see anything done to deserve love. This is what it takes. The beautiful part of that story of Shane Taylor's is the very place where he was the most sinful was the place where he was released into his mission first. That, that, that happened, I believe, and you know, that's obviously a, a nicely packaged testimony, but there had to have been someone. Uh, maybe this is not true, but I like to imagine that, that maybe Shane felt like that salvation was all that he could ask of God, that, that well, I'm just going to scrape into heaven, but, but God wouldn't want to use me any more than that. And I'd like to think that there was an Ananias and a Barnabas in, in Shane Taylor's life that said, no, God's got more for you. God's got more for you. You're called to more than that. God accepts you more fully than that. Because this truth, Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners. No one gets saved... And that's the end of it. No one gets saved and there's no one in the book of life, in God's book of those who are saved, who, who God said, well, they can get in, but I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to release them. I'm not going to empower them. I'm not going to give them the fullness of life. They can get in. That is not true of anyone. Jesus Christ came to save even the worst of sinners. And we need to broaden out what our understanding of saved means. One of the, the Greek words for saved, sozo, in, in the New Testament means saved, healed, delivered, empowered. It means completely transformed like the Apostle Paul was, like Shane Taylor was. So let us lead others towards their very own encounter with Jesus.
Let us be a part of that, but let us not think that we just need to nudge people over the line, that, that we need to lead them to the place of significant personal encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. But let us be a church and individuals who accept, who love, who welcome in a completely, ridiculously, radically revolutionary way. And so as we sing to finish, I I just want to leave you with the thought that to be an encounter with Jesus, you first need to have an encounter with Jesus. It's when we live our lives out of a place of encounter And I don't mean you need to have had this blinding light moment or have had this physical feeling moment or that there's kind of a a list of characteristics that means you've had an encounter but you haven't. I mean that if we want to be an encounter for Jesus, then we need to live out of a place of encountering Jesus in our own lives. Um, And so as we sing this song that we've sung earlier, I just want you to, to press in, press into Jesus, encounter him in this moment as we worship. If you've never made that decision to put your trust in Jesus, then I'd love to pray with you this morning as well as we close um, and and lead you in that way. But let's sing, let's worship and let's uh, encounter Jesus. And so Father, we thank you for this truth this morning that you, you sent your son Jesus Christ, that he came to save even the worst of sinners. So as we sing, as we worship this morning, I pray that we would encounter you again, afresh or perhaps for the first time. I pray that we would be an encounter for others who don't yet know you. In Jesus' almighty name. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love you to become a part of the Ask Baptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.